0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's program, How to Talk Dolphin. Our standards have really dropped, haven't they? Uh, If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at Newstalk.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. As ever, we get to all of those comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the Newstalk app, Powered by Golo. And you'll hear some listener stories Two. First though, um, it's time to look back at some of the week's science stories and we're joined by recovering immunologist and medic, Dr. Lara Duncan and Dr. Shane Bergen of UCD. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Lara, has to do with the all-hallowed CRISPR.
0: Yeah, so everyone who's listened to this show, um, so, you know, all, all five people and my mom know what CRISPR <laughs> is at this stage, and, and they're well used to hearing. So, so the basic idea behind CRISPR is that it's a gene editing technology. So we can change the genetics of a cell or presumably a person. But the key thing is that this went into clinical trials in humans in 2020. This has been going on in people for at least two years now. And there's a new paper that's just been released from the Tel Aviv University, which is I think kind of an inevitability, but also quite shocking. And what it's saying is that up to 10% of cells that have been treated with CRISPR have a significant percentage loss in their genetic material. And this can have massive consequences. So I'll just tell you exactly what I mean. So CRISPR goes in and it edits the genetic material. And what the people who are doing this are hoping is that it does exactly what they want and nothing else. But what this university have proven is that in between 2 and 10% of cells, when they look at them in a very fine way, so they're actually looking at one gene at a time and they're sequencing the RNA just in, sorry, in one cell at a time, excuse me, right. and they're <laughs> sequencing all the RNA in that one single cell. And they found that up to 10%, depending on which chromosome they're looking at, has been massively altered and sometimes even full chromosomes lost. And this is desperately important because not only do we have cells that have a mutation that causes them to be carcinogenic, which means turn into a cancer, we also have vitally important genes in a lot of our, well, in all of our cells, that stop cancers. So they're they're the genes that suppress cancer-causing genes. And if you lose these, then you get cancer. So if you're losing large parts of your genetic makeup, there's a huge possibility that you could have a malignancy, a cancer in the future. And this has massive consequences. Now, at the moment, and very rightly so, CRISPR technology is being used only in adults, those who are very unwell, and those who have a, a significant chance that it will improve them. And this is medicine. To a T, there is no such thing as a risk free procedure. I can't tell you to have a paracetamol without telling you that there is some sort of risk and it's a risk benefit balance. But it is so important that we remember this when people start to talk about tinkering with little small blastocysts that are going to turn into embryos. Before we do anything like that, a long time before, we need to remember that this is a f- not a foolproof technology. There's huge flaws to this still, and it's all about the risk-benefit analysis. So at the moment, I do think that the benefits are there for people who are being treated with it, but we need to hugely remember that when we start talking about awful things like designer babies and, and things, things down the line.
1: This research is presumably working on um, historical work, which presumably is, is the CRISPR-Cas9 first iteration. But there, there has been since CRISPR, the next generation, CRISPR discovery um, and all the other versions, later versions of uh, CRISPR. Presumably they are better and less likely to, so it's to actually, cause this or?
0: it's repeated the exact thing that was done in the clinical trial in 2020. So it's repeated years ago what happened in human beings. So it's it's taking these human beings as very important people and that's what matters. So it's, it completely replicated that. And that's where they found all these flaws. So this right. is only two-year-old technology. It's, it's, okay. it's younger okay. than my child.
1: Uh, right. Um, Shane, our second story is a good news story um, from uh, the company that made DeepMind. This is AlphaFold and it could revolutionise our understanding of proteins. What's happening?
2: Yeah, and um, Lara talked about CRISPR being only uh, two years old. Well, this, this one's only uh, only a year old, AlphaFold, and it has done remarkable work, Where the people behind it have. And it's all associated with uh, artificial uh, intelligence, uh, which mimic human ways of learning, as we know and have spoken about a lot. And what um, this uh, research has uh, been able to do is to determine the structures of an incredible 200 million proteins um, from almost every organism on the earth, that's a million plus species, right? Now, proteins are a fundamental uh, biomolecule. They're, they're, they're used like, you know, biological systems. They're everywhere, right? I suppose they are to biologists what well, something like an electron is to a physicist. They're just fundamental. And uh, you need to learn about their structure if you want to know how they work but they are incredibly complex. They are the thing in biology I fear most because when I look at an image of a protein, they're just these really asymmetric complex things. And I'm like, how in the name of God does anyone ever make sense of what they do?
1: Um, It looks like a big tangled mess of wires and springs.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It it certainly does. And so in order to be able to determine a structure, you need a lot of um, sophisticated techniques. And people used... Uh, crystallography and microscopy. So they look through microscopes to figure it out. But now we've been able to use um, artificial intelligence to figure out structure and thus by uh, figuring out structure, you can determine what they can do. That can be used for for new medicines, etc. So as I said, it's only a year old and it made quite the splash in the life science community when it came out. And not only can it predict structure, it can also give a sense of how accurate its prediction is. So of the 200 million plus predictions, 35% of them are rated as highly accurate. In other words, as good as it gets. In other words, you couldn't do better with a, an experimental technique. 45% of the predictions are confident enough for scientists to be able to go on and do something with them. Um, this is all available now on the, uh, the DeepMind uh, website, an incredible 23 terabytes of data. And it's only the beginning. It's only a year old. Now, Artificial intelligence scares the living bejesus out of me most of the time because of its predictive power and what it can do. I think this It's behind is- you, Shane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, this, this, this application, this type of learning, is, we're going to see huge things uh, coming from this. It's, it's, it's as if we only knew about six or seven elements on the periodic table. And now all of a sudden we, have, we know them all.
1: Yeah, the, um, the way that um, astronomers were losing their um, marbles over the James Webb State or the JWST, as we'll call it, um, telescope. There's sort of similar chatter about this treasure trove of data on proteins. Lara, as a former immunologist, what, why is this um, uh, a non-practicing immunologist, you might call yourself? Uh, what do why? you think I do every day? <laughs> well, you're a doctor, don't you like put, stick thermometers? I'm literally a
0: registrar in immunology. <laughs> But that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. No, no, it's okay. It's cool. Just because oh, it's medicine, you it doesn't count, right?
1: Well, you're not, are you doing research? Are you like a, a clinic? I didn't know this. You're a, Doctors um, are cool too, okay? It's no, not know, just researchers. Are
0: you... Researchers are cooler though. <laughs> <Okay>.
1: um, <laughs> no, I'm glad we got that out of the way. The, um, the, the question I have for you is, um, what is, what, what is, what does this mean that you have the shape of proteins? H- how does that help us in, in terms of um, understanding the body and, and, and new medicine?
0: I suppose to, to a geneticist, genes are everything, but actually genes are literally just a blueprint for proteins. Proteins make absolutely every single thing in your body and everything that goes right, but also everything that goes wrong. So if you can think about even, for instance, the tau protein, which is one of the things that can cause Alzheimer's disease, it's literally just a misfolded protein. So if you can delve into the difference in the folding of proteins, you could potentially cure diseases, massive diseases.
1: OK, uh, sounds good, um, Shane. And uh,
2: you, you might say, Jonathan, it's, it's a good job. We do have doctors who are also immunologists, you know. <laughs> good on you, Lara. <laughs> don't mind them. Dude. I mean, are <laughs>
1: we real, <laughs> you know? Oh, I don't ask for the CV of every contributor that comes on <laughs> the show. You know? Every
2: contributor, ten
1: years she's here. <laughs> <laughs> OK, shut no, up, Shane. No. All right. Our third story, Lara, has to do with a complete Covid vaccine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, even though I'm desperately underqualified to be talking about such things, I am. Um, there, there is new research that's come out from the Francis Crick Institute in London. And what they've done is they've tried to develop a more universal coronavirus. So, not COVID, because COVID is a disease that is caused by SARS CoV 2, which is the most recent coronavirus iteration that has caused the pandemic. But a coronavirus is something that's been around for a very, very, very long time and has caused the common cold for millennia. So what they wanted to do was develop a vaccine that if you got this vaccine and then you got an infection with one of the coronaviruses, you would have a pretty good ability to fight off lots of them. And they targeted this S2 subunit on the spike protein. People have talked about the spike protein a lot. It's what allows the coronavirus to get into our cells. And it has, that means it has to be reasonably well conserved, where a lot of other parts of the coronavirus mutate quite readily. So they've targeted this S2 subunit and they've vaccinated mice with this. And then they infect them with SARS-CoV-2, which again is the virus that has caused the pandemic. And then they see whether or not they can produce antibodies to other coronaviruses. And it's been quite interesting and quite effective. They were able to produce antibodies that were able to neutralize the common cold, which is the the one that has been getting us for many years. The original strain of SARS-CoV two, then the mutant that caused the first wave, then the Alpha variant, the Delta variant, the Beta variant, the Omicron variant, and even two bat coronaviruses. So it, it would be quite interesting to see how this would work in reality. My suspicions are that this wouldn't give you complete protection against any of them, but but partial protection. And I think that's the big thing that. People who are anti-vaccine would forget, we're not trying necessarily to stop you getting infected, we're trying to stop you getting sick. And that's the big thing. So this is really interesting research and has great potential.
1: Fantastic. Um, And look, it's only in mice at the moment, so we'll we'll see where it goes, but it, it would be great to finally get a handle on this thing. Our final story, Shane, uh, has to do with a a rather controversial method of finding new species uh, by the Natural History Museum of all People, which seems to involve just scooping crap up off the bottom of the floor. Yeah,
2: if I were going to be cheeky, I I could say that many of the national museums in Britain have never had a problem going around scooping things up. But I won't say that, Jonathan. And uh, (laughs) So the Natural History Museum is an incredible place that has virtually records of every living thing. And they're not satisfied because they need to find more. And they have found 30 new species under the sea in an abyssal plain, um, which is a deep part of the Pacific Ocean uh, called the Clarion-Clipperton Zone. And um, so they sent a remotely operated vehicle below the waves and uh, to an area where they were only able to previously take photographs. And as you said, uh, they kind of rummaged around and they found an incredible diversity of megafauna. So that's big animals. Uh, So these are not tiny little microscopic living things. These are sizable creatures that you could perhaps hold in your hand. So they found 55 things altogether. 48 of them were different species, um, and they found them all at different depths. They found things called segmented worms, invertebrates from the same family as centipedes, marine animals from the same families as jellyfish, and various different types of coral. And as I said, they found them in in, in all sorts of depths and all sorts of treatments. It just goes to show um, that we know so little still about the, the depths of the ocean And, uh, you know, it's just there for us to go and grab if we want to. But I'm being facetious here because really why they were doing this work was to understand what the uh, biodiversity is like down there because other uh, scientists are more interested in going and digging those places up and mining in them. And so zoologists want to establish that there is a lot of delicate life there. And if we're going to go down and start ruining the place, we need to be mindful that there are creatures there. Because and man to,
1: creatures as well, like totally weird ass creatures.
2: Oh, yeah. Always. It's always the best episode of David Attenborough's uh, uh, programs about the water is when he goes really deep and you see these freakish animals that live in very low, low light conditions. Um, yeah, so what they've been able to do because they were able to capture them is they now have DNA from these creatures as well. So I suppose we can, we can go and understand them uh, to a greater extent before we cause them to die out.
1: I think my favorite was the gummy squirrel, which looks like a banana on legs, which is pretty awesome um I, I think I think um they sort of swooped in in advance, made sure that everyone understood this is a beautiful and rich place, and now it's going to be difficult i suppose to implement you know massive drills without uh, at least some public awareness so I suppose that is why um they use this technique, which is, is in itself a little bit disruptive, I suppose, just kind of smash and grab to, to get some some megaphone and bring it to the surface.
2: Yeah, it is. But perhaps it's, you know, maybe it's the only way for us to figure out what they are and where they are.
1: All right. Thank you very much both. Now, if there's something strange in your neighbourhood, who are you going to call?
0: <gasps> Ghostbusters!
1: Or, you know, just a professional psychologist. The science of the weird is on the way. I'd rather a ghostbuster. <laughs> what? It's It's summertime. <laughs> Now, if you're a pet owner like me, you probably have plenty of experience trying to get a basic message across to your dog. Or perhaps if you own a cat, you've given up on that hope many years ago. Yet many of us have had that momentary glimpse of understanding, that sense that we could communicate if we just worked at it. But is animal translation actually possible? And could science one day allow me to convey to my dog, Roxy, that I actually want her to bring the ball back rather than run away with it? Well, Diana Reese is a co-founder of the Interspecies Internet and professor of the Department of Psychology at Hunter College. She joins me now. Before we go anywhere, Diana, what is the Interspecies Internet?
3: Well, first of all, good morning, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Yes. So the Interspecies Internet is not actually dogs and cats surfing the net and, and talking to each other, uh, at least at not this at this point. The idea was uh, an idea of actually Peter Gabriel, the rock musician and, oh. and visionary, many years ago. And he had this idea of he got quite interested in the idea of what we if whether we could communicate with other species. And um, he had been involved in some work with great apes. Um, he had this idea to bring together a forum, an interdisciplinary forum of scientists trying to crack the codes of other animals to decipher what they're doing people who were developing interfaces for communication with other species and bring in psychologists, philosophers, AI folks, other computer scientists, artists and musicians together in a forum for discussion and exploration. That was the heart of it. And he uh, approached me because he knew me from the work I was doing. And uh, I joined him in the team. And then uh, Neil Gershenfeld, who's a professor at MIT and the head of the Center for Bits and Atoms. Uh, was was asked to join the team by Peter. And then Vint Cerf, the co-father of the internet, heard about this at a conference at the World Science Festival in New York. Neil was telling him he had joined the Interspecies Internet. And Vint, uh, his ears perked up and he said, I've got to be part of it. So the four of us <laughs> are perhaps strange partners on this, but um, it's been a wonderful collaboration.
1: This is a TV show in the making. This is a TV <laughs> show in the making. So, um, I know this is something you've been interested in quite some time. You started working with dolphins. Talk to me about your interest in animal translation and understanding animals in a a higher way.
3: Well, my background was actually both in theater, the arts and science. So I brought this interdisciplinary mix. My PhD was in speech science and communication. So I was studying what's the big word is bioacoustics, how we look at the sounds of others, humans and other animals. And I was fascinated when I was doing my PhD in learning more about dolphins, because first of all, they have, these are highly social, big brained mammals. In fact, like us. And in fact, they have their brains are second largest relative to the size of their body to us humans. So they're really great contenders uh, to try to communicate with these other social beings. And I started trying to decode their their signals. I was very fortunate. I had a lab in Northern California at the time, and we had two births at the facility. Uh, We had been studying the adults in the pool and recording their sounds so that we could decode how they use their sounds in communication, and we were quite fortunate to have two young dolphin calves born. So we we studied and published on how their vocalizations develop over the first wow. year, how echolocation develops, um, and then we gave them an unlikely situation considering they're non-handed. We gave them an interactive underwater keyboard. When I I'm sorry, say that, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> Why would you give dolphins with no hands a keyboard? Now, this was a big, uh, it was about a three foot by three foot uh, underwater keyboard that had visual symbols on it that could be pressed. When pressed by the dolphin, they would uh, break a fiber optic beam, fiber optics provided in in kind by, by Hewlett Packard. We had a lot of corporate sponsorship at the time. They would hear a computer generated sound that corresponded with each of those visual symbols and they'd get a specific object or activity. So for example, it was kind of like a vending machine, but we gave the dolphins choice and control. Instead of trying to train them, I wanted to say, here, I'm working with this really big brain species. Let me work with their kids a little bit and see, it was like a kindergarten. Here, you can choose, you can get control over getting objects and activities. If you press a different symbol and those symbols moved from position to position, there were nine positions. Would they imitate the sounds? Would they use them? Mm. And absolutely, the answer was yes. With wow. little, with very little intervention or instruction, we just let them explore it. And what they, was this, Diana? This was in nineteen. This was done from nineteen eighty three to nineteen ninety one. I think it was. Wow. We, we published. Yeah, we published this in ninety three. So you know, this we could barely do it. I mean, our technology. I was using an Apple II computer as an interface that gives you a sense of how how this was when I first got my PhD. It was a long time ago. And, um, but what we found real quickly is that the dolphins, the young dolphins explored what's the keys. They learned the contingencies of using the different keys. What happens when they hit this key, they hear a specific sound. So if they hit a triangle shaped key, they would hear a whistle like, and they would give them a ball if they hit a different shape key that was shaped like an H, they would hear a different sound like, and we tickle them. So we picked things we thought they'd like. And in fact, they, they did all that. They showed preferences for their preferred objects by hitting those keys. But what was more fascinating was that they quickly started to imitate the sounds. They started to use them when they were interacting with the corresponding objects. And in the second year of the study, they started actually combining two of the toy sounds and it was in a context of when they were playing with those two balls to get the two toys together, a ball and a ring. So why is that important? Well, it gave us a way of trying to understand how they might organize and use their own signals. These were whistles that we designed on a computer and they were this within the frequency the pitch that the dolphins could produce, and with their t- within their time domain that they used their whistles, but different in the kinds of whistles they were, so they were right. Neat.
1: I was wondering why you were using just whistles, but that's because you wanted. To use sounds that they could both hear, but also recreate themselves.
3: Exactly, we wanted this to be a, a a code that they could use that we could understand because we had given them. So then we could see what the how they combined, whether they would combine, or how they use these things. Right. They even, if you you want to hear a little bit, I'll just give you the, the the two things that I was terribly impressed with was they also started using them. With us. So if they went up to um, a symbol, for example, and they would often whistle the ball whistle and then hit the ball key, showing that not only were they learning it was associated with the ball, perhaps, but they learned the associations on their own between the sounds and the key press. They actually started whistling. Those, uh, those, some of those signals towards us. So at one point I was changing the keyboard symbols. I, we had to do it manually. It was not that high tech. And they would lock in with a little key. And as I was changing one of the symbols, uh, the, they could, no sounds could be produced because the system was locked from producing sound. And one of the young dolphins, Pan, was whistled the rub key and rubbed my hand while I was doing that and put his contact call, which is an individualized signal they all have after that. We saw things like that. So they were starting to use them towards us. So that was very exciting and it was a long time ago.
1: No, I mean, that's what I was thinking that um, now we, that is probably not as surprising, but back in the 80s and mid 80s, you know, this is, you know, just maybe uh, around about the time we're understanding that, that. you know, there's a lot more intelligence to animals and a lot more to communication than we'd previously thought. I mean, we're still obviously learning a lot about that, but you've continued to work with dolphins, or at least um, you were working with them in the National Aquarium Project. Can you tell me about that? What, what were you What were you doing there?
3: Sure. So we've done a, a few things at the National Aquarium. It's a terrific aquarium, very animal welfare and conservation oriented and science oriented. And um, we did a study, the first study we did there was a follow-up study on some work I had published with one of my colleagues, Lori Marino, many years ago at the New York Aquarium, where I was directing the research program there. It was a study at New York Aquarium that was published in 2001 in the National Academy of Sciences showing dolphins like us and great apes at the time could show mere self-recognition. And it was the first time that we'd shown that a mammal, other than a primate, had been able to do it. The monkeys don't generally show it great apes do. And we used to think this was unique to our kind of intelligence. So we showed that with two uh, adult dolphins, actually male, but they were young adults, juveniles. Um, Then a national aquarium, one of my graduate students, one of the graduate students in my lab, Rachel Morrison, and I looked at whether at, at the age at which it might emerge in young dolphins and the reason we wanted to do this was it mirror self-recognition, even though it seems so obvious to us that we can recognize us ourselves in a mirror. Children don't develop this ability until about 20, uh, 18 to 24 months of age. And it's yeah. a time when there are lots of connections being made. They're socially more advanced. They, they're aware of others socially. And young dolphins are born in a highly precocious or advanced state they have to hit the water swimming, so to speak, stay with a group, be able to stay up, stay with their moms. They have to be able to breathe you know, at a certain rate. And um, what's interesting is we we predicted that given the fact that they were socially advanced and their motor skills were advanced, that they might show this. And in fact, they did. So we tested um, a whole social group of the dolphins, give, providing them with mirrors. And we, we we published on the two youngest, because what we Found was that they actually show mirror self recognition earlier than human children. That's
1: you know that, all that work and the similar work in Corvis that we know crows can also do this. It's gone beyond mammals and primates. But um, the the communication between one animal and another another I suppose the, you know the dream is a Doctor Doolittle sort of scenario. But realistically, when we have inverted commas conversations with animals, they tend to be. Uh, highly trained, highly closed, and really about specific wants and needs, right? You know, temperature or warmth, cuddles or food. I'm wondering, is, is it too much to ask for more than that from, from animals? Because uh, we do know that, for example, elephants mourn their young, uh, as do many other animals, that there are complex behaviours that we see that uh, are, you know, are rare in animal, animals but do happen. And my long winded question is, do we project too much of the consciousness of being a human onto the, the existence of being an animal? And, and will we ever be able to go beyond very simple interactions of, you know, give ball, that sort of thing uh, with animals, given the limitations that we see in the human experience versus the experience of animals in the wild?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's a, a wonderful question. And it, it's a question that I think about a great deal. You know, we're looking at others, other people as well, and other animals always through our own lens, whether it's our cultural lens. And we, you know, we think about, well, if we see it this way, may, that perhaps they see things like that. And I think with other people as well as and other animals, we have we have to try to find ways to get out of that lens. So I think one of the first steps that may seem obvious when i say it is we need to build a relationship with an animal i mean communication is about sharing information and if you don't have a relationship first of all we're kind of deaf and blind to what those animals are about what their lives are about so much of the work that i've done and that other people have done starts off by observing and listening to what their worlds are about what are the social lives of animals about what are so for example we take in in the interspecies internet approach as well as my own personal work there are two paths one is observation and recording their behavior what they're doing so we use aerial drones now to get a view from above where we're not affecting their behavior and we've tested to see it doesn't the drone doesn't seem to interfere we've We've looked at that already. And then we try to record what they're doing. And we do that in aquariums, in the wild, in Belize and in Bimini and other places. But then we try to do experiments where we will work with animals in Aquaria and try to enrich their world. So it's really giving back to them where we give them choice and control and systems like that. Um, So it's that mixture where, and then trying to develop these relationships with the animals. It's, you know, my, my own work was involved with, uh, three dolphins at Marine World Africa USA in Northern California. And I worked there for 10 years. I was with the babies, uh, the calves when they were born. We worked with them and their moms, kept the group together. And I had a very personal relationship with those animals. I can give you some funny and interesting examples of things you may see when you have these relationships, but that comes first. And they react differently to different people, these are big brains. And um, we've had some interesting examples that are anecdotal in nature, but give you a glimpse so that you can then design experiments. And that's very much how I work.
1: Give me those examples, please.
3: (laughs) Well, I'll give you two. Okay. So one was my first encounter with a dolphin mind. This was when I was a graduate student. I had a grant from the French government and I was in the south of France working. And I We had the um, opportunity to work with a very young dolphin. This is where I was just testing whether they could see visual symbols. It was very preliminary before I did the keyboard study. And I named this little dolphin. She was about two and a half Circe. And she had been brought in from the wild by someone. I want to just say we should not be taking dolphins and whales from the wild. We want to leave them in their environment and protect them where they are. I worked very hard at that. But at the time, this was back in 1978. So... Circe I, they asked me in exchange for me um, observing her behavior and working with her would I teach her to station when I fed her because she was used to swimming around with other dolphins and she had to learn to stay still in front of a bucket and just stay there till I gave her a terminate signal So I was given b- these big mackerel Spanish mackerel to feed her and her head was about half the size of the length of the mackerel so I figured I'll cut it into head sections, middle sections and tail sections. Circe, readily ate the heads and middles, spit out every tail I gave her. And they had little fins, you know, the back fin. And I thought, well, maybe she didn't like that. So I cut the fins off and she ate them. I joke that she trained me to cut her fish a certain way. Yeah. But anyway, everything was going fine. And in the course of me teaching her not to leave until she got the terminate signal, she, I she would leave because she was still learning. And whenever she left the station, I would give her what I called a timeout. It was a technique that people had used when you don't have a other means of communication to say something's wrong. I would just back away, stand about 10 feet to 15 feet away from the pool and look at her and she'd just be bobbing there watching me, but it served as a correction mechanism. So she knew she did something wrong. So everything was going fine. Circe was a smart dolphin. She learned fairly quickly to stay stationed. And then once everything was going well, By accident, one day, a few weeks later, I gave her an uncut tail. It was my mistake. Cersei looked up at me, spit the tail out, and made a beeline across the pool, took a vertical position, and just stood there and stared at me.
1: Mimicking your uh, reprimanding behavior.
3: Well, it certainly felt like that because she'd never (laughs) done that before. And I had a young student with me at the time. uh, And we kind of looked at each other and thought, is she giving... A time out here. Now that's a real anecdote. There's nothing you can do. And I can't, I can't publish on that because yeah. who knows, it could be a lot of things, but I turned it into an experiment that became one of the unplanned experiments for my doctoral thesis. Um, and what I did was I was really careful to cut all her fish over the next, the course of the next weeks. But then I did a series of probes where during those weeks I would give her on occasion at one uncut fish, and each of those next three times I did it, she did the same behavior. That's where you can turn something you see as an anecdote into an experiment to test the hypothesis.
1: So this is exactly what I was wondering because that seems to go beyond simple "give me this, I'll give you that." You know, um, satiation of desire. You know, food or 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 comfort. It seems like that dolphin. Uh, appeared at least to be expressing uh, an, an, a complex emotion of, of disappointment uh, to you. I'm wondering, do, do you think that with all the technology we have, our understanding of the brain, uh, animal cognition, will we ever get to a level of being able to communicate or understand our animals uh, in the same way as we understand each other?
3: Yeah, I don't know. I You know, it's a great dream. I think part of it is gonna require us understanding more about the animals and what their lives are and what their communication systems are like. That gets into the decoding project. And that's, again, one of the focuses of both the interspecies internet and my own work and that of other people. The other aspect is once we understand more about their world and their signals and start interacting with them, can we have some kind of shared code that we can use that's understandable? So I think when we think about communication, One kind of communication is the kind we think of with King Solomon's ring, the myth that King Solomon had a magic ring that allowed him to decode and communicate with other animals. Because if you understand what they're communicating, you can communicate back. You can share yeah. that. Yeah. So, if we think about big data analyses now, you know, being able to get big, uh, lots of data in on certain species and look for patterns and try to understand how they're using it, I think that's going to be very important towards that goal. I think finding interfaces at, with what I call a toolkit, so that we can use it with different species. Once we know more about their world, we can at least meet them halfway. I think we have to be able to meet them halfway. And frankly, a lot of species have done a lot better at figuring us out than we have them. But I do want to put a pitch in for two things. There are some people who've done such advanced work. Dr. Irene Pepperberg, who um, has been at Harvard, She's, um, she's now moved. But Irene Pepperberg's done huge breakthroughs with African gray parrots these, you know, what we thought were bird brain, when we think of the word bird brain as pejorative, it's now birds, we know birds are quite intelligent and parrots have shown functional communication skills using human vocalizations, things that we never thought birds could do. Crows are showing extraordinary cognitive prowess. studies with the great apes by Dr. Sue savage rumbaugh has had, they've had breakthrough experiments where the the chimpanzees and bonobos have indeed learned codes. And they've used them in communicative ways. But then again, they've had a complex shared relationship. But she's given them codes that they could use together. So I think we have had these pioneers in this field. And um, part of what we're doing within our species is celebrating those pioneers and trying to inspire others to go further.
1: Is it true that you can speak dolphin? (laughs) I believe you can make some dolphin vocalizations. I didn't want to let you go without hearing one of those and telling telling us what it meant.
3: Well, dolphins use a wide variety of sounds. They use whistles like I, I was doing before. And there is a rich variety of those. Each dolphin has its own contact call or signature whistle. We're trying to all study and understand more about that. They also use a wide variety of what we call wideband pulsed signals. So here's where I really sound goofy. So, a, a squawk, for example, um, they do tonal squawks. Uh -uh. where they can modulate those the they do barks and yelps and squeals and they often use them in very different contexts when they're being sexual with each other you'll hear yelps and squeals and all sorts of other sounds mixed with whistles they also use echolocation which is a very sophisticated kind of sonar that bats also use and then they use that in conjunction with their body language which is also terribly important space between them the way they 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 Peck flip, peck slaps, tail slaps, open mouth, jaw claps. So it's a rich, rich variety like we use of multimodal signals.
1: It was absolutely fascinating uh, speaking with you. And uh, I have to say, it, it is lovely hearing about, um, you know, that early research that, that really broke our understanding of the ability of some of these animals. So thank you so much for your time today, uh, Diana Reese from the Department of Psychology at Hunter College Uh, and, of course, the interspecies internet. Diana, thanks for your time.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's only a matter of time before they add dolphin to geolingo, isn't it? Um, Your thoughts, please. And if you ever feel like you've had a conversation with an animal, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. Producer Aidan McKelvey uh, joins us to go through some of your comments from last week. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. Why the dramatic pause? Is it it a line issue or were you thinking of what to say?
4: (laughs) Right. No, that's that's that must be a line issue because you also, I said, how are you? You also had a a very dramatic pause, which made me think that maybe you're not that good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm, I'm excellent. I'm excellent. But I'm under time pressure. I know you have to go. So we have to do this quickly. so let's get to some of the comments from last week. We um, we were talking um, in the news about a review of a whole bunch of studies on um, serotonin levels. And the review said that it's pretty conclusive as far as we can see, a very thorough review, that uh, serotonin levels are not linked with depression. That's what the, the review said. And uh, we got a huge amount of comments in from it. Um, some people saying this is um, misrepresentative. We, we believe the tweet was accurate. Um, there was another um, comment about whether or not it was responsible to, to mention this in a, in a tweet. And I feel, you know, if you're going to get your medical advice from a, a tweet, then that's problematic. But we we followed up with that. Um, it, obviously, you know, it goes without saying. I don't know anyone who's ever you know made a major medical decision based on on a single, um, uh, uh, you know, comment on a, on a podcast, but don't make those decisions without your doctor, right? But uh, that being said, uh, let's get to some of your comments. Um, as you say, um, one people said, uh, are they telling people over the radio their meds don't work and would make no difference if they stopped taking them? Sounds dangerous to me. What's dangerous, Nipper, is uh, you saying that when that's not what we said at all. Not to be pointy or anything, but we didn't say that, did we? We said nothing close to that, Aiden.
4: No, I think think in this situation, I think this speaks to what I was talking to with you a few weeks ago about Twitter and the way it works. I think you can be as pointy as you want because people the problem, one of the problems with Twitter is there are three things that people are ready to do. One, they're ready to be indignant. Two, they're ready to read a headline and not read any further into the article or listen to the piece. And three, they're willing and ready to assume the absolute worsts uh, possible attention <laughs> on the part of the person who put up the tweet none of which was in the none of that was in the tweet but lots of people jumped to that
1: place straight away indeed indeed, indeed. um so no nipper we didn't say that. Um, and it would be dangerous had we said it, but now you saying it, other people then thought that we said that, which we didn't. So you can see how this is problematic. Nipper. Um, uh, Connor Tobin also said, given what we know about how social media works, I can't help but wonder if it's dangerously irresponsible if Talk FM to promote an already popular show in this way. I appreciate the, uh, the compliment that it is already popular, but we didn't, as I say, it, 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 the tweet was accurate. But there is, um, I, I suppose... A point to be made from uh, Owen, who who commented on, on what we were saying. Um, we tweeted, new research has cast doubt over the use of antidepressants after a review found no clear evidence that low serotonin levels are responsible for depression. So that is is technically accurate. Um, Owen says it's a review, not re- new research. I think we say that in the tweets and it casts no such doubts. I think it does. Um, It has the antidepressant effect of drugs that increase serotonin availability in the synapses that led to the monoamine serotonin hypothesis of depression in the first place, not the other way around. Not gonna argue with that because I don't understand it. The review itself seems uncontroversial, but this part of the conclusion is so odd. Who needs to acknowledge this? Some science journalists and Twitter users, maybe. The failure of the serotonin hypothesis has been discussed in undergraduate textbooks for years. Decades of research has found SSRIs and similar antidepressants work for some people and not for others, for reasons that are not well understood, this review didn't examine the effectiveness of antidepressants, and they are only discussed as a confounding variable. Well, this is all presumably true. I'm not an expert um, in the in the the subject Owen, but um, for me as a layperson, my understanding and maybe maybe I'm way out of touch, but my understanding was that serotonin levels were associated with um, with depression, and the idea that. Um, there is no clear evidence that low serotonin levels are responsible for depression. That was brand new to me. Um, So uh, that's why I think um, it was also brand new to to some of our research team, which is why uh, they tweeted that out. So that was kind of boring, really, wasn't it? But there you go, just setting the record straight. Um, (laughs) It's like... (laughs) Okay, Um, we were talking about penguins and Jack Embrace says, On the future of penguins, the penguins in South Africa are dropping quickly in population due to reducing fish in the area. In an effort to move the penguins to richer grounds a few kilometres along the coast, scientists are making realistic model penguins and placing them on beaches and rocks so that real penguins out fishing will see them come in to say hi and settle down. And it's working. The penguins are slowly moving to richer fishing grounds. Amazing! That is amazing. I did not know that. That track. is
4: amazing as well, considering like last week I heard discussion about animal perception. I was like, would they not have some sort of way of detecting whether it's not a real penguin penguin or not? But then I figured that probably what happens there is the penguin goes, oh, look, a penguin. And then they get over like, no, oh, it's not a real penguin. But This place isn't too bad. I'll stay here.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, those stories I absolutely love. Um, maybe we might see if we can find a researcher from behind that. Um, and then we were speaking about bisexuality on the programme and we we're talking about Kinsey. Um, uh, and someone says, Kinsey also researched children and sexuality. How? By communicating with paedophiles and recording their abuse of children. Just research him. And you were praising him. Um so uh, uh, we we were saying he 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 was very definitive in um, describing sexual America at the time of his work, and I, I don't know about this, Aidan. I, I think if we want to understand what what is going on in a pedophile's mind, um, which I think is extremely important, of course, um, I kind of understand. I understand why some person, some scientists might say we need to ask questions and uh, and, and uh, you know and record that information I don't know, where where do we stand? I mean, like the, it, it, maybe the duty of care, the dial of duty of care has shifted now that if, if someone confesses something like that to you or says something like that to you, then you must immediately report them. But then you're caught in this trap of no one will ever speak about what it is that they do or why they do it um, openly or in, or in confidence because they know that it will end up um, getting them reported and, and put in jail. And so we, we find that issue more difficult to understand. I mean, I, I, this is not an area of expertise of mine. I'm fully open to to, to, to to someone explaining what the best approach is to try and understand why people have these these compulsions and, more importantly, why they act upon them, um, which is, uh, of course, something that we all find um, extremely apparent, just to state the obvious. Um, so uh, I don't know your, your thoughts on it, on it Adi, and I don't know what the practice is now.
4: Well, it brings to mind that kind of moral quandary that exists for both the legal profession and the psychiatric profession. Yeah. Like you know, they, they have this commitment to keep confidential or to, to speak to, you know, in the case of uh, legal profession and in the case of some psychiatrists, people who will have done hideous acts, murders, uh, criminals. And I guess the, the thinking behind those rules where they will not disclose those actions is that it's for the greater good of society, but it obviously presents a moral quandary for all of us. We all feel a little uneasy about it, especially when we hear about psychiatrists who, you know, take confessions but don't pass them on because there's no immediate danger in the future to someone. Yeah. It's not something that feels nice, but I'm sure researchers, especially in psychology psychiatry, have talked to all sorts of people who've done all sorts of terrible things as part of their research. You know, yeah. they probably do a lot of research with convicted criminals and. Maybe a lot of good comes from that, and um, I mean neither you or me are experts, but I would imagine that in, in a very basic level for their research, knowledge is better than no knowledge.
1: Yeah, I, if you are um, a psychiatrist or a psychologist with experience in this, um, neuroscientists, even a nurse would love to hear from you. What is the current thinking on that? On this approach and on gathering um, highly um, controversial data from uh, you know potential. Uh, sexual offenders and and so on Um, I'd I'd love to know the answer to that actually if if we've solved it Uh, very interesting that's it from us we should have left the penguin story to last though shouldn't we (laughs) and finally (laughs) do work they work for a reason and finally penguins Uh, right that's it from us uh, on this week's podcast thanks to Aidan McKelvey producing Simon Keane Steve Daunt Jojo Cardozo once and we'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday talking about ghosts and why we see them in the meantime stay curious Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
0: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday
3: morning at 10. On News Talk.